The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. The revelations of the arrest and the horrors of the crimes held the nation in their grip. The press wrote about an evidently well-organized band, diabolic in its ruthlessness, to destroy with bullet, poison, and bomb the heirs to the oil-rich lands of the Osage, about crimes that were more blood-curdling than those of the old frontier days, and about the federal government's efforts to bring to justice the alleged king of the killers. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. flat on her back and taking pain meds and really being miserable, we had been house shopping. And without selling my condo in New Jersey, we decided to buy the house of our dreams. So I've been finding paperwork and uh, pulling money out of the air. It's just been absolutely crazy, you know, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. So we've both been really overwhelmed with life events. So we are back. Thank you for, for bearing with us through this. Oh. And guess what? So we're recording this around the 4th of July. It should be released hopefully within the next week for you. Throwback to our first series where we discussed I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. First, the long-awaited HBO series was released on June 28th. So make sure to watch that because it's, it's very good. It's very interesting. And definitely show some details they might not have even caught in the book. And to make the release even better, the next morning we saw headlines that gave us heart palpitations. Oh, yes! The Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, who we thought would never open his damn mouth, pled guilty to 13 counts of murder. Thank you. Yes, yes. He will hopefully be admitting to uncharged acts, which is excellent news for our survivors those out there looking for answers. Yeah, it put a smile on my face just knowing that the survivors and the families of the victims were vindicated. That day that they had waited for was here to hear him saying, yes, I admit, I admit, yes. And that fake frail act, did you catch that? Oh, he was riding his motorcycle days before his arrest, zooming around. Oh, please. Ugh. But you know our shtick. Enough about us. We are just happy to be gracing your ears again with our presence and to be going over this shocking conclusion of Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Now, remember, we're a book club. So, you know, grab your snack, get your wine, sit back and relax. Just just do it. And uh, listen wherever you damn well please. 
Yep, it's quarantine. Kind of phasing out. Kind of here, kind of there. Influx cases. We're in the green zone, but some places are closing up again. So it's in flux. So whatever, just stay safe and please stay healthy. Yes, we're still separated just to make sure that we keep our own bubble safe. But hopefully we will be together again one day soon here in the near future. Oh, I hope so. So let's dive back into our story. Now, we don't really have much to go on regarding who is actually killing the Osage. But Tom White isn't necessarily struggling. However, Jagger Hoover certainly won't let the Bureau fail. Mm-mm. And he immediately begins to request updates from White. Micromanagement? Oh, yes. Well, Hoover also had a vested interest in the Osage case, as he had actually been investigating the Osage murders himself prior to Tom being sent to Oklahoma. He believed that a white woman, Nicia Kenny, married to a member of the Osage tribe, would be the witness that blew this case wide open. Perhaps a small conspiracy within a conspiracy. She had told agents that A.W. Comstock, I don't know if you remember him from our first episode, but he was a guardian to several Osage. She believed he was in on the murders. And Hoover did want him to be a suspect. Remember, he had slighted the Bureau just a little bit. And any criticism of the Bureau was direct criticism to Hoover himself. And as you might have guessed, though, Hoover's smoking gun didn't hold any real bullets. Mm. Kenny had a history of mental illness and was considered paranoid. Therefore, her story didn't hold much water. Tom White also couldn't verify the claims against Comstock. And he couldn't feel much ill will to someone who was willing to help. So, by the end of July 1925, Brian Burkhart was at the top of Tom's suspect list. But Brian's alibi was solid. There were corroborating witnesses in the form of an aunt and uncle who had stated that after dropping Anna off, he joined them all in Fairfax. After their time in Fairfax, this aunt and uncle were with Brian in the same house the whole time, the whole night, and he couldn't possibly be the murderer. Must have been in the middle of the bed with them during during sleep time. <laughs> well, you know, he wouldn't sneak out or, you know, people, family members don't do that and they don't come and go. And But he, this is his alibi. I mean, he's got this aunt and uncle. So he, he can't be the murderer, you know. However, here comes the but, but. Oh, a lot of buts. Lots of buts, yeah. In August, there was a tip that Brian had been spotted in a town called Ralston with Anna much later than when he said he dropped her off. They were spotted in a car by some white men who made the conscious effort to unsee certain things. Or, you know, they had been paid to stay hush-hush. They weren't going to talk about this. One witness was said to have even disappeared. Another played dumb until he realized it was actually federal agents asking him the questions. Because talking to the wrong people could get you killed. This man and his wife were confirmed that they had seen Brian Burkhart driving with Anna Brown the night she disappeared, totally contradicting his earlier statements. Yeah. So White is able to establish a timeline of Brian Burkhart's whereabouts. Brian and Anna had been seen at the speakeasy in Ralston up until 10 p.m. that night. They had headed to another town just north of there afterwards. 
Brian's uncle, the one who said they spent the night in the same house together, well, he was spotted out with the two of them. So there goes the alibi. Surprise. Yeah. However, others thought that they had seen Brian and Anna with some other men, not the uncle, but a quote-unquote third man. 3 a.m. was the last time anyone could report that Anna may have been seen alive. Someone who knew both Anna and Brian heard a car stop outside her home, and someone who sounded like Brian shouted, Stop your foolishness, Annie, and get into the car. A neighbor encountered Brian returning to his home at sunrise, and, you know, Brian gave him some advice to stay quiet and gave the man some money to keep his mouth shut. So for Tom White and his gang, this new evidence just brought forth more questions. What is Brian's motive? Was he involved with the other murders? And just who is this third man? And the mystery just deepens. We're going down some rabbit holes. There's lots of them. Buckle up, murder bookies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, aside from the many questions that we're already asking ourselves, there's also a leak in the investigation. Reasons of this sort were nothing new to the Bureau. However, the lives of agents were at stake, especially those who were undercover. I remember a lot of Tom's team were undercover. And Kelsey Morrison, the Bureau's prize CI, was almost outed by two private investigators from the Burns Agency. And this almost seemed a deliberate action in hurting the Bureau's case. And it was heavily believed that the men were being paid to do this. If so, by who? One person who seemed to arouse the most suspicion was the private eye that William Hale had hired earlier in 1921 to solve Anna Brown's murder. And that was this man, Pike, who we touched on in part one. A manhunt was launched to find Pike, who was eventually found in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he had been arrested for allegedly committing highway robbery. It's funny how all these private investigators turn out to be criminals themselves. Agents were aware of Pike and the fact that he had failed to make any headway in the investigation. But knowing that he was stuck between a rock and a hard place, one of the things that Pike shared with White's agents was that he hadn't really been hired to solve the murder of Anna Brown at all. He was actually hired by William Hale to cover up Brian Burkhout's whereabouts the night that Anna went missing. What? Yup. You heard it. William Hale, friend to the Osage, had contracted Pike to manufacture evidence and create a false alibi for Brian to get other law enforcement officials and private investigators off his trail. I'll be damned. It threw me for a little bit of a loop, let me tell you. And Bran wrote, quote, If Pike was telling the truth, it meant that Hale... A seeming paragon of law and order, who had held himself up as Molly Burkhart's most staunch protector, had been lying all these years about Anna's murder. End quote. And what else did Pike have to say? Oh yeah, Ernest Burkhart, Molly's husband, was sometimes present when he met with Brian and Hal. What that again? Oh my God! Oh my God! That cracks everything wide open. You have to look at everybody differently. Yep. And while this is getting super dirty, because William Hale had a lot of clout in town, along with the breaches and the scent of conspiracy in the air, 
Tom advised that his agents could carry weapons, even though it was against Hoover's rules. He also made it clear that they should use them if or when necessary. Well, yeah. People yeah. that he thinks are on the up and up and looking for justice and helping are the very people who now appear to be the one orchestrating all this. Mm-hmm. And they're killing people. And people are going missing. Yeah, I'd be using a gun. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Hoover be damned. <laughs> well, you still have the Second Amendment. Love it or hate it, you have a right to self-defense. Mm-hmm. I'd be walking around with a gun in that town. Holy mackerel. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the hero of our story a little bit. Tom White. I love this man. Oh, Tom White. Okay. So, Grant interjects into the story some background about Tom's childhood, his family, and more specifically, his father. We'll be fairly succinct about his story, but it's a really, really good one. Tom grew up in the shadows of the law. His father was the law. Robert Emmett White was elected as sheriff of Travis County in Texas, which included Austin in 1888. It was the tail end of the Midnight Saxon. Yes. Yes, it absolutely was, yeah. right? So Tom was the third of five children, his mother having unfortunately died giving birth to the last of his siblings and leaving his father to raise his brood on his own. Now, growing up, the whole family lived in an adjoining building to the county jail, which Tom and his siblings witnessed a range of human goodness to pure evil. That must have been absolutely an amazing education, because you really do get to see everything. Emmett was firm and unyielding, but respected those within his care, and he chose to make arrests without using a gun. To our delight, he did not mix young, nonviolent offenders with the more dangerous inmates, choosing to house them in his own home with his family. You know, much like today, we know that the law isn't always just and that innocent men have suffered due to wrongful convictions. And Tom was very aware of the judicial system's flaws and opposed greatly the death penalty. Now, in 1905, Tom enlisted in the Texas Rangers at 24 years old. The Rangers essentially became something akin to a state police force. Doc, you might remember as Tom's brother, was also a Ranger and recalled the advice their father had given him when he first became one to, quote, get all the evidence you can, son, then put yourself in the criminal's place. Think it out. Plug up those holes, son, unquote. So, Tom went on to get very good at catching a certain type of criminal. The rogues, the rascals, those cow rustlers, the horse thieves, the pimps, the rum runners. So he did work on a few murders, but investigative techniques were really non-existent at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with Tom, too, he didn't even pull a gun half the time with these types of criminals. And he opposed anyone who did especially within his own group of the Texas Rangers. He really emulated his father significantly. And so after a few years with the Rangers, in addition to much hardship with them too, he decided to call it quits and marry a woman who he met in Abilene, Texas. Uh, Her name was Bessie Patterson. That's so romantic. Oh, right? It is. A woman to settle down with. They settled in San Antonio, where the first of their two sons were born. And there, Tom became a railroad detective, and that was a job that made it possible to raise a family and, most importantly, elongate his life. 
She was in 1917, though, when Tom took the oath to become a special agent in the Bureau of Investigation, which offered him a little more of the intrigue and the darkness he seemed to be attracted to Chase. So while he wanted to settle, he was still very keenly aware of that urge to basically capture these forces of evil out there. I don't think he's so different from a lot of police families today, because you do see that. The the father, the son, the daughter, they follow in that tradition, and it kind of gets passed down. Yeah, and most of his brothers, I think, ended up being in the Rangers or some type of law enforcement, too, so Mm -hmm. definitely a law enforcement family. Yep. So back in September 1925 now, we're back in the present. Tom was thinking of all the new scenarios now available to him that William Hale and his nephews, Brian and Ernest Burkhart, had been implicated in the Osage crimes. Had Bill Smith uncovered the truth? Is that why he was killed along with his wife, Rita, in an explosion that rocked Fairfax? Remember, Bill had always believed that a larger conspiracy was afoot, and this just gave credence to those theories. And before Bill died in the hospital, the Schoen brothers remember them, and his lawyer came to see him. And the nurse recounting this information to Tom said that they had asked her to leave the room. So she unfortunately couldn't give any information about the conversation taking place. But it was also a weird thing that they asked the nurse to leave the room. Yeah, why would doctors not want a nurse there to assist, help, take notes, hand them equipment, medicine, syringes, pads? Must have been an interesting conversation. Mm. So, Wayne was already weary of the Schoen brothers, especially when it came to the missing bullet in Anna Brown's case. Remember those unspeakable things they did with her brain? <sighs> but all the Schoen brothers would say is that they thought Bill might relay the name of his killers, which they were adamant to admit that he didn't point this out. But wait! He said he did have two enemies in the world. Bill Hale and Ernest Burkhart. Amazing what an outside agency was able to find after all of the law enforcement investigating this. And Tom suspected that the Schoen brothers had an ulterior motive in visiting Bill at the hospital, and that was to obtain the legal right to execute Rita's will. And this was a position that white men wanted as it came with the opportunity to deal more money from the Osage. This is the slimiest part of the book and this conspiracy. It is mind-blowing. So the more that Tom began to dig, the more corruption he comes across. The Guardians were taking money right from underneath their wards' noses. They would purchase goods from their stores for their wards at inflated prices, direct them to certain businesses in order to receive kickbacks on top of claiming to buy land or homes for their wards, only to really be buying it for themselves. A government study even came out before 1925 that estimated Guardians of the Osage had stolen more than $8 million directly from the Osage wards. That's insane. Despicable. I mean, it's just disgusting. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Grant wrote, quote, his so-called Indian business, as White discovered, was an elaborate criminal operation in which various sectors of society were complicit. The crooked guardians, the the most prominent white citizens, administrators of Osage estates, 
were typically among businessmen, ranchers, lawyers, and politicians. So are the lawmen and prosecutors and judges who facilitated and concealed the swindling and sometimes acted as guardians and administrators themselves. In 1920, the Indian Rights Association, which defended the interests of indigenous communities, conducted an investigation into what it described as an orgy of graft and exploitation. The group documented how rich Indians in Oklahoma were being shamelessly and openly robbed in a scientific and ruthless manner, and how guardianships were the plums to be distributed to the faithful friends of judges as a reward for their support at the polls. End quote. I want to throw up. Mm-hmm. It, it makes you sick just reading about this. It, <laughs> exploitation. Terrible. Terrible. And, and rampant. It's racism. It's just rampant racism. They made these people dependent on people who are just exploiting and taking advantage and now murdering. Ugh. And it's every facet of society. Yeah. All the way down. From top, all the way down. In charge. Yep. The scheming of the privileged white men of the Osage Guardians were not only shameless, They were downright evil in selecting the unsuspecting Osage as their prey under the guise of helping them when the government listed them as less than full citizens. One guardian had left Osage County with all the wealth of one widow, leaving her and her children penniless and in poverty. Without food to eat or money to pay for health care, her child, who was sick, perished. When it was brought before a judge, the case was ignored. Uh, This is shocking, but it shouldn't surprise you, as it's been repeated throughout history with indigenous people, and it's really still happening at different levels. Yeah. Yeah, so it's very day. Yep, sure is. So one of White's agents, the one that was pretending to be an insurance salesman, but who was really an insurance salesman, he (laughs) met a woman with a story to tell. She told him that there had been a fire on Hale's land some time ago with thousands of acres lost. The cause of the fire was unknown, but the woman knew. Hell's workers had started the fire on his orders so that he could collect the insurance money. What about becoming Henry Rowan's beneficiary, then? That was about insurance. Mm-hmm. No one had truly investigated that, but it didn't seem to be a coincidence any longer. Tom tracked the original insurance salesman down. We know the story. Hale lent Rowan money. They were close friends. That's why he was listed as the beneficiary. Well, the story that the insurance agent told White was very different. Hale had requested the policy on his own without Henry present. And then there were those helping to falsify the documents to get him what he wanted. And the doctor who had to examine Rome for this particular policy asked Hale, quote, Bill, what are you going to do? Kill this Indian? Hell laughing said, hell yes. It, come on, he's being open and blatant about it. Oh, oh my God. Oh. And what's worse is that local law enforcement completely disregarded Hale as a suspect. Instead, they turned to a man named Roy Bunch, the man who had been having an affair with Rome's wife. Logical suspect. But Bunch had told investigators that Bill had advised him to leave town. However, on a friend's advice, if you run, they'll hang it on you for sure, Bunch stayed put. 
Pell was unable to collect on Rome's estate, and even worse, before the insurance policy fiasco, Pell had tried to purchase Rome's headright. However, Pell was in blood, and that was the only way to obtain a headright via inheritance. But here we are, another case built on circumstantial evidence but with no motive. However, I feel, as I'm sure you do, there is a super clear motive, which is pure, unadulterated greed. Ding, 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 ding. Both poor, inferior to white men had money, more money than they could ever dream. So why should they not have it? Yeah. Just take advantage, do what you have to do, be ruthless, undermine them, kill them, do what you need to do, get the money. Yeah. So, fortunately, the hero of our story, White kept digging. Some of the killings began to look systematic. Head rights were being funneled to one person. And that one person was Molly Burkhart. She was inheriting all of them. And in the end, Anna Brown had redirected her inheritance to her mother, Lizzie. By killing Anna first, the head rights wouldn't be divided among multiple heirs. Lizzie was the next target, as in the event of her death, the money and headright claims would go to Molly and her sister Rita. And, whoa, Nellie, here's the doozy. Bill and Rita's demise was masterful. Someone knew that there was a particular clause in their will, which said if they died simultaneously, most of Rita's headright would go to Molly. Ergo, blow them up together, and Molly gets it all. What they didn't count on was Bill outliving Rita by a few days, so some of his inheritance went elsewhere. But no matter, Molly's married to Ernest, William Hale's nephew, who is Molly's guardian. See how this all falls into place? Much more sinister now. Oh my god. So now the agents knew, based on information from Kelsey Morris, that Ernest and Brian Burkhardt did anything and everything that their uncle told him to do. So if Hale is capable of anything, why so not murder? So David Grant wrote, White couldn't determine whether Ernest's marriage to Molly, four years before Anna's murder, had been conceived from the outset as part of the plot, or if Hale prevailed upon his nephew to betray her after they married. But in either case, the plan is so brazen, so sinister, it was hard to fathom. It demanded that Ernest share a bed with Molly, raise children with her, all while plotting and scheming against her family. It, it's just mind-blowingly outrageous. And it makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Those damn puzzle pieces. So, believe it or not, all of this began to unfold for White in the Bureau within a few months of coming to Osage County after years of dead ends. Seems like a lot longer that they're down there investigating, but it actually was just a few months. In a report, the Bureau summed up the intricacies of the web in which they found themselves tangled. Big players that we thought were friends to the Osage in Part 1 were actually really quite horrible people involved in this quote-unquote Indian business. Scott Mathis, guardian of Anna Brown and Lizzie, he was nothing but a crook and a spy for Bill Hale. The chief of police in Ponca City accepted money from him. 
The chief of police in Fairfax advised he would never do or say anything against Bill Hale. And even the mayor of Fairfax was a good friend. The list goes on. The report put it that, quote, Hale dominated local politics and seemingly could not be punished, end quote. On the back end of the Bureau, Hoover was making radical changes in terms of streamlining its efficiencies. Overlapping divisions were being eradicated and power and authority being centralized. Agents like White were given more autonomy and more opportunity to lead men in the field, but that meant that they themselves were on a very short leash controlled directly by J. Edgar Hoover. White had to fill out efficiency rating sheets like you wouldn't believe, like report cards for his agents, rating them on a scale of 0 to 100 for things like knowledge, appearance, which I feel like is going to be something later years that you definitely can't do, paperwork, and loyalty. This became an agent's grade, and everyone failing to meet Hoover's standards was out. He was known to have said often, quote, you either improve or deteriorate, end quote. That they had a hundred points to deal with, to me, just speaks of way too much math. What's wrong with yeah. one to ten? I know, it should be <laughs> one to ten. This is like one of the pain scales that we use for surveys in healthcare is zero to a hundred. Rate your pain. Oh, oh man. Seventy two point nine seven six four. That's my pain. Seventy two point nine seven six four. You have to use a whole number. Seven. What's wrong with seven? Sorry. I don't like numbers. <laughs> no, it makes sense though. It's a very big scale. <laughs> Also, at the Bureau, new policies are being drafted into a super thick manual that became the essential handbook about how to be an agent of Hoover's Bureau. It laid out specifics on how agents were required to gather and process information, and it also outlined how to standardize their case reports and minimize them to a one feature. Hoover is all about efficiency, except for that zero to 100 scale. <laughs> this would prove to cut down on time and paperwork. However, Hoover utilized this method to organize the Bureau's central files and general indices. He would keep a personal file for himself that included information that he would later use to blackmail politicians. However, under Hoover, Grant describes agents as interchangeable cause. They would essentially be freed of local corruption and create a unified national force, although it ignored regional differences which constantly kept moving agents from place to place and kind of uprooting their families and so on and so forth. Yeah, that had to stink. But, fun fact! All right, Hoover had his agents trained in New York City long before Quantico was established. And this school taught agents everything from fingerprints to ballistics to rules surrounding evidence gathering, securing crime scenes. The Federal Bureau was Hoover's baby, and he did bring it into a new era and one of scientific policing. So whether you love the man or you hate the man, he has to have your respect. He did do that. That was a legitimate school. Yes. Yep, it sure was. Now, while all this is going on, Hoover is worried that they weren't going to have enough evidence to convict William Hale of the Osage murders. However, White did do his best to try to convince him that he'd gathered enough evidence to put Hale away along with his accomplices. The Osage were skeptical of law enforcement, 
Yeah, duh. Yeah. And with good reason. All right. They're desperate for someone to find this killer. And more and more residents are starting to leave the area. Parents wouldn't let their children go out at night. The frayed lights are burning brightly. And, you know, something, something has to give, right? Something has to be done. So Tom White is beginning to understand that none of the upper white middle class of Osage County would turn in one of their own for the murder of an indigenous people. It's not happening. However, it was Comstock who came to the aid of the agents. He used his relationship with a known outlaw's family to get the young criminal to give up the information to the Bureau. Yeah, so good for Comstock. Mm -hmm. This young man's name was Dick Gregg, and White got the chance to speak with him himself. So thinking he is going to get time off, of course, every criminal thinks they're going to get time off if they talk to the police. Mm -hmm. Dickie Boy sang like a canary. He told an amazing story. Greg used to run with Al Spencer's gang, which was a known outfit in Oklahoma, and Hal propositioned Greg and Al Spencer to kill a couple for $2,000. And that couple was Bill and Rita Smith. Both Greg and Spencer agreed that killing a woman, any woman, was against their nature, and they both declined the offer. At least we have criminals with morals. Some standards here. Something. Some some standards. (laughs) Greg's story appeared to be in line with other information the task force was collecting. But then again, it did come from the mouth of a criminal looking to get something in return. Mm-hmm. So Greg went further. He advised Tom White to go find Curly Johnson to know all about the bomb job. Unfortunately, the team, Johnson was dead. Tainted alcohol. Hmm. That sounds familiar. Hmm. Then there was Henry Grammer, the former rodeo star turned bootlegger. He was friends with Hale, and before the Smith blow-up, Hale had created an alibi for himself. He and Grammer were going to the Fat Stock show in Texas, and a witness claimed to have heard Hale talking to Grammer about, quote, that Indian deal. And guess what? Grammer was dead, too. It was a car accident out on an empty road in the middle of nowhere. How convenient. Exactly. Dying left and right. Huh. Now, there was a safe cracker, too, name unknown, who told White that there was someone else who knew about the bombing plot, and that man was Asa Kirby, an associate of Grammar's. It was said that Kirby had expertise in explosives, and he had designed the bomb that killed the Smiths. However, guess what? Kirby's dead, too. <laughs> You're kidding me. He died during a robbery gone wrong. And we heard about this in part one, actually, of the book. And I think we touched upon it in part one of our series, too. William Hale actually made a call to the shop owner because using his connections, he was like, hey, your place is going to be robbed. And Grand wrote that in doing so, Hale had reinforced his reputation for upholding law and order. But it seemed like he was just tying up another incident. Yeah, he's getting his accomplice killed. For robbery. And his hands are clean because he's such an upstanding citizen. Oh, my God, I'm throwing up in my own mouth. I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, that's four people dead in, like, four sentences. Yep. (laughs) So, just a little bit deeper, White began to hear that many of these other incidents weren't mere accidents. Grammar's car had been tampered with. Curly Johnson was intentionally poisoned. Anyone who tried to name Hale as the culprit... Of 
this conspiracy was taken out of the picture. And Kelsey Morrison, RCI, told agents, Hale knows everything. Oh, brother. You know, Hale seems to be just mocking the Bureau at this point. All right, he's heard to have said, I'm too slick to catch a cold. Good line, though. It is. That's a, that's a good villain line. It is, yeah. So White receives a tip in late October 1925 that a prisoner named Bert Lawson had some things to say about the Osage murders. Hey, I'd be thrilled to have a tip from anybody at this point, right? So Lawson tells White that back in 1918, he worked for Bill Smith, and in doing so, he meets William Hale and his nephews, Ernest and Brian Burkhart. Oh, bigger. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately for Lawson, his wife and Bill Smith had an affair, which ended up tearing Lawson's family apart. The number of affairs I can't keep up. I, I got to tell you, I just, I can't keep up. So needless to say that there's no love lost between him and Smith. Right. So knowing that Lawson hated Smith for what he had done to him, Ernest approaches Lawson and asks him for a favor. And that favor was to kill Bill and Rita Smith. Now Lawson doesn't want to do it, but Hale came by to see him and offered him $5,000 cash money to complete the job. All Lawson had to do was place the bomb beneath the house and light a match. But Bert still refuses. In an unfortunate turn of events, Lawson is arrested for the, a murder of another man, and Hale ended up coming to see him and offered him the job again. This time, Lawson agrees. I'm pretty sure it's because Hale said, I can get you out if you do this. Mm, you think that might be it? I think that might be it, too. So, the night in question, a bribed deputy opened Lawson's cell and brought him to Hale, who shepherds him into the backseat of a car where Ernest is waiting. They drove out to Bill and Rita's, where Lawson took the bomb into the Smith cellar and sat down and waited. I would have been a nervous wreck. There's no way I'm doing this. When the time is right, he lit the fuse and got the heck out of there. All right, Hale and Ernest are waiting for him. They drop him back off at his cell with the friendly words, If you ever speak of this to anybody, we'll kill you. All right, unable to contain himself, White sends a telegram to J. Edgar Hoover on October 24th, 1925, stating that he has a confession from Brett Lawson that places him at Bill Smith's house and may have been propositioned by William Hale in the presence of Ernest Burkhart, to do so. Hoover is a happy camper. Very happy camper. Must have been. Sure. Oh, that's a damning stuff there. Yep. So White knew that he had to do something and do it quickly. The fate of Molly Burkhart depends on it at this point. Remember, most of the wealth accumulated by a handful of victims had found its way to her through the inheritance laws. And while Ernest was the guardian of Molly, he didn't necessarily control everything. Therefore, Molly needed to die in order for Ernest to get his hands on her head right and for Hale to have full control. The agents knew that Molly had stopped going to church and that she was being forcibly kept away from other family members. She was afraid that someone was trying to poison her. Priest had even advised her to not drink any liquor that someone might give her. Unfortunately, 
liquor wasn't the problem. Remember, Molly had diabetes. And what better way to administer poison than through her regular insulin injections? Oh, boy. White knew that Molly was receiving these injections regularly from who else? Schoen Brothers. But instead of getting better as she was supposed to, she was only getting worse. They needed to get her away from Ernest and most certainly away from William Howe. Poisoning her insulin? How low can you possibly get? I'm not surprised at this point, though. It's almost so surprising, and the amount of surprises that have just rolled in continuously, it almost doesn't shock me anymore that this is what's happening. No, it's just insidious. It sickens me. Yeah. And it just keeps going. Yeah. But it doesn't shock me anymore. No. So warrants for the arrest of William Hale and Associates were issued on January 4th, 1926. As agents were not able to make arrests, they worked in tandem with U.S. Marshals and other law enforcement officials, including our friend Sheriff Frias, who had been reelected. Remember, he'd been ousted because he looked away from gambling and bootlegging. He was, he was a friend to all these fools, too. But they were able to tackle Ernest Burkhardt quickly, but Hal was another story. He actually couldn't be found. But lo and behold, he just turned himself right in. Just walked in and said, hey, I think you're looking for me. He seemed so confident and had the attitude that it was White who had made a mistake and that he had not committed any crime at all. White knew he wasn't going to get anything from Hal at this time, so most of the attention was going to be focused on Ernest. The audacity. But I'm an upstanding member of the community. I'm just going to turn myself in because I own this town. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So, now we're focusing on Ernest. So, Ernest Burkhart was questioned about Bert Lawson, the bomb guy, right? However, he tells Tom that he didn't know the name and he had never met the man. And White starts to have this little tinge of fear. What if Lawson had been lying? And what if he was making it all up to get a good deal? All right, however, Tom and his agents were pretty adept at picking up on body language. Whenever the name William Hale was brought up, Burkhart seemed to cower at the mention of his uncle. So Burkhart is definitely afraid, and White felt good about that gut feeling. Trust your gut, right? Yep, trust your gut. Right? So White questions Ernest for hours, but they finally give up and return him to his cell. Not too afraid yet. Would make me a little nervous, though. Not Mm -hmm. sure I like the way this is going. All right, so the next day, Hale tells White that he could prove that he was in Texas at the time of the explosion that killed the Smiths. White felt like he'd been punched in the stomach again. Had he committed the ultimate sin and not gathered enough evidence to back up his theory? All right, so White looked to Black E. Thompson, who was an outlaw who had previously embarrassed Hoover in the Bureau. And so White took the gamble. He had Blackie transferred to the federal building so that White could talk to him about William Hale and Ernest Burkhart. Blackie knew that the Bureau wouldn't cut a deal with him. However, he did tell the agents that Ernest and Hale had previously approached him and Curly Johnson to kill the Smiths. Part of the mission and part of the payment was that Blackie steal Ernest's car. He did steal it, 
but he was later picked up for car theft and never went through with the murder. They told Ernest that someone else had identified him in the plot to kill Bill and Rita Smith. And White took the law seriously. Every person has the right to face their accuser. So they brought Blackie to face Ernest. Blackie told Ernest that he had told the agents everything. And Ernest looked fairly deflated. It seemed he was ready to give up. And at some point in the night, the phone rang for Tom White. Ernest was ready to talk. Finally. Yeah. Finally. So Ernest tells White that he didn't kill anybody, that he didn't want to be involved, but he knew who had done everything. Burkhart signed a paper that stated, quote, After being so warned, and with no promises having been made me of immunity from prosecution, and of my own free will and accord, I now make the following statement, end quote. William Hale was the mastermind, and he was the one who came up with the scheme to kill Bill and Rita. Ernest felt that he had no choice but to go along, just as he always had. He and Brian, again, did whatever their uncle told them to do. He and Brian did whatever their uncle told them to do. Ernest verified that when Johnson and Thompson wouldn't kill the Smiths, they sought out Al Spencer. And when Spencer wouldn't do it, that was when Hale went to Henry Grammer, who said that he would give him a man for the job. That man, again, was Asa Kirby. But Lawson, the guy that confessed to White about being directly involved in the plot, had actually lied about the whole entire thing. I mean, thank goodness for White that Ernest started to spill the beans, because even though this guy told a convincing story, he was actually lying. Oh, my God. That would have been real bad. Oh, my God. But Ernest told them that Hal had gone to Fort Worth with Grandma so that they could have an alibi for when the bombing took place. Ernest was flowing now, and he told White and the other agents details about how Hale had arranged the death of Henry Rowan for the insurance money. And better yet, Ernest knew who pulled the trigger, and that man was John Ramsey. White had nothing to worry about now. He definitely hadn't blown it. He had Ernest talking, and it didn't seem as if anything was going to plug the hole in the dam. Oh, thank God. That could have gone very poorly. Oh, my goodness. I can only imagine. <sighs> my heart was hammering in my chest when I was reading that part in the book. It was just... Oh. David Grant is a wonderful writer. Masterful. Yeah. So let's get back now to the third man. Remember our third man? So who is he? Well, Ernest knew the name of him as well. It's someone that we all know. Kelsey Morrison, the confidential informant. Aha. Uh-huh. So not only is he doing double duty... But he had also pulled the trigger that killed Anna Brown. No way. Yes. Yes. Kelsey Morrison. After Kelsey was taken into custody, the authorities wanted to check in on Molly Burkhart. So remember, she thought she might be being poisoned secretly. So as soon as she's taken out of Ernest and Hale's hands, she instantly became better. Funny how that works. Amazing, right? Now, Ernest would not admit any wrongdoing against his wife. Maybe he didn't do it. Maybe it was wishful thinking. Maybe he didn't know what was happening. Maybe Hale didn't trust him enough to ask him to bump off his wife. 
you know, White and the agents had to break the news to Molly that her husband Ernest was involved with the murder plot surrounding the death of her tribe's people and family members. And this was something that she chose not to believe. Either Ernest is plain lying or he has a case of denial, and I am not talking about Egypt. <laughs> all right. <laughs> they are killing people all over the place. And Molly's immune? Come on. Come on, Ernest. Come on, Molly. I know. It's just horrible to try to understand this. So Ernest had said about Hale, he was the best man you ever saw until you found him out and knowed him. Yeah. So take this to heart when we tell you another shocking development in the case. Tom had discovered the secret. The father of Anna Brown's unborn child was William Hale. Oh, shit. William Hale. And if that's the case, then William Hale had also murdered his own flesh and blood. Oh, my God. What a low-life piece of crap. He murdered his own child. That piece of information when I read it actually did shock me. Considering everything else, I was just kind of like, oh, another thing? Oh, my goodness. It keeps getting more and more terrible, just like the layers that keep getting added to this. Uh, that absolutely blew my mind. Poor Anna. I know. Ugh. Poor everyone who suffered at the hands of these privileged white men. This is horrible. Horrendous. I'm out of adjectives. I'm glad this was a story that David Grand wrote, because it definitely highlights a lot of things. Wait was having a tough time pinning all of the murders on William Hill. Remember, there's 24. So we have Lizzie, Anna, Bill, and Rita. That's four. Henry's five. I don't think I'm missing anyone else. It's just so many. He benefited from at least two more mm-hmm. that I will talk about now. Yes. And those were Chief George Bigheart and another man named Joe Bates, whose wife claimed that Hal had kept her husband drunk for the better part of a year. And Hal got Bates land upon his death. <laughs> Bigheart was a different story, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. He was mixed up with the W.W. Vaughn, who was one of the poor friends of the Osage, who got beaten up and drawn off the train, and his naked body being found. Right, right, right. Out, of the, out on the tracks. And so the Osage were determined not to let Hale escape punishment. However, they had every right to be nervous due to the state of corruption present in the county, state, even the federal government. I mean, hell, Clarence Darrow, lawyer from the Scopes Monkey Trial in the previous year, he was found to be bribing prospective jurors. Who could you trust? Hell had influence, and he was going to use it. And then there was that question of jurisdiction, Oh, lovely jurisdiction. Grant wrote about the law of the land. If a murder is committed on Indian territory, federal authorities could claim it as theirs. I think that still exists today. However, the Osage lands were allotted where the murders took place and therefore technically not under the tribe's control. So Justice Department officials said that they could only be tried by the state of Oklahoma. However, out of all of the murders... There was one exception, and that was Henry Rowan, who was killed on a piece of land that hadn't been sold or allotted. Therefore, it could be tried in federal court. So both Hale and Ramsey were properly charged with his murder, and they were going to face the death penalty. Yeah. Now, 
prosecution team consisted of two high-ranking officials in the Justice Department, and also a young U.S. attorney named Roy St. Louis, and a local attorney named John Leahy, who was married to an Osage woman. Hale had a formidable team as well. He had hired Sergeant Prentice Freeling, former Attorney General of the state of Oklahoma, and another man named Jim Springer. I was almost going to call him Jerry. <laughs> who, who was known as a fixer. And with Springer on the team, Ramsey recanted his confession. And Ernest Burkhardt explained to the prosecution, you know, Hale told Ramsey not to worry, hence his new confidence, and that Hale had a man on the inside with the government. Go figure. Of course he did. He just showed up on the scene like a homeless little vagrant looking for land in the Wild West, no law territory, and just built this whole thing around him being a good person, a friend of the Osage, and the whole entire time. He was just doing what he could to get his hands on it. I shocked you. You did. So, finally, it does seem as if Bill Hale's world is crumbling down around him. Many of the conspirators around him, a crooked pastor, a fraudulent private investigator, hitman, countless others, were being charged with crimes ranging from fraud to murder. White had his concerns with Ernest, because of course he did. This is the one witness that Bill Hale was actually afraid of, and for very good reason. He was heard to have said, Whatever you do, get to Ernest, otherwise I'm a ruined man. Now, an early form of the witness protection program, Ernest is taken out of state to a safe house, where he would be watched over until the trial. Hey, with all the poisoning going around? Mm-hmm. Very prudent. Good idea. Yeah. Meanwhile, Molly still cannot believe that Ernest had a hand in the systemic murder of her family and the other members of her tribe. Tom finally met with Molly, and she's no longer feeling ill, but she didn't want to admit that her poor health was connected to the guardianship of her husband, Ernest Burkhart, and his uncle-in-law, William Hale. This poor woman has been so betrayed, it's just, it's just inconceivable to her that her whole family is wiped out. She just cannot comprehend it. And I understand that. It's going to take some time for her to, to work on that. Oh, absolutely. So on March 1st, 1926, Tom White and the prosecution receive a small setback. The court rules that Rowan's death was on an allotment and not tribal lands, and therefore the case is to be tried in the state court. Oops. Okay, that means that Hale is going to be released. However, the prosecutors do have something up their sleeve. As soon as Hale and Ramsey were released, they were quickly arrested for the murders of Bill and Rita Smith. However, this case needs to be tried in Oklahoma State Court, and that is going to be in Pawhuska, the town run by Bill Hale. Not good. Yeah. Hopefully you guys remember that when we talked about Lizzie Borden, that case, that trial, being the trial of the century in our second series. Well, I don't think this trial received the same coverage. However, everyone shows up to get a seat because this is the biggest thing since the Scopes trial in Tennessee the year before. I have to just diverge. Just history teacher, I have to say this, okay? Now, that's known as the Scopes monkey trial. 
teacher John Scopes was accused of teaching evolution in the classroom. That was a no-no at the time. William Jennings Bryant, he had been a three-time presidential candidate, is facing off against famous attorney Clarence Darrow. Scope loses and he is fined, but later the conviction was overturned on a technicality. But this is a huge deal at the time, and it actually still comes up in some areas that this is an issue. Wasn't Darrow involved in the Golden Globe? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he's wildly famous at this time. So you have like, these two major powers in this trial. It's a really intriguing trial. It's very cool. Anyway, poor Molly Burkhart, after all she's been through, was a person of contention. White people, friends of Bill Hale, turn away from her. Even her own people shun her because she's believing in Ernest's innocence. Awful. Just awful. Reporters dub her an ignorant squaw. Yet, she shows up at the trial every single day. During the opening of the trial, Ernest Burkhart was given a choice, and that was to talk with Hale's lawyers. Court adjourned to the next day to allow Ernest this opportunity, and the following day, you would believe it, Ernest states that he would no longer testify for the state and would become a witness for the defense and have his own separate trial. Come on, it's so obvious what's going on. I know, but no one wants to believe it. I know, it's just painful. So is that to take place first. And how throw a wrench into the mix early on when he was put on the stand. He claimed that the bureau had ways of making people talk. Can you and picture this? Can you top <laughs> Can you picture him doing this? He said that White and his agents threatened to rough him up using electricity to torture him to get what they wanted. I can't picture that, but stranger things have happened. But anyway, Burkhart and Ramsey claimed the same. Hoover almost spit out his breakfast when he read that in the newspapers. And White had to defend these allegations in court. And, you know, no love's lost amongst the agents and state officials or those in House Corner. But the defense was calling for members of the Bureau to be fired. However, they were able to get Kelsey Morrison, or flip-flopper, to turn tables again. He told everyone that Hale had wanted to get rid of the whole damn bunch and that Ernest would get it all, thus admitting his part in the conspiracy to murder Molly Burkhart's family. He even elaborated on the plot to kill Anna Brown. He said that Hale had given him the pistol to commit the murder, a thirty-eight automatic. Brian Burkhart had been with them, so had Morrison's wife. His wife testified that the two had left the car with a drunken Anna and were gone for 25 minutes or so. When they came back, Anna was no longer with them. Mm-hmm. And Morrison corroborated the story with the real facts. He and Brian had led a drunken Anna down to the spot where her body was found. They sat her down and they shot her. So much to unpack there. Mm-hmm. Can you picture... Tom White electrifying his I, I the man who watched his dad separate the juvenile criminals from the hardcore that role model his home with his children yeah no way Tom does not do no not on your life but I I would like to see J Edgar Hoover spitting out his breakfast exactly and then just knowing now. What happened to Anna? Yeah, and finding out how she met her end is terrible. 
but the truth will out, and it did. So on June 3rd, which is part of the way through the trial, Molly gets called away. Her and Ernest had a third child whom she had given away due to the stress of members of her own family dying and herself being very ill. This child actually passed away unexpectedly. And it also seems that the death of this child may have given Ernest a change of heart. And four days later on June 7th, he passed a note to one of the prosecutors asking him to meet him in his cell later that night. And when the prosecutor showed up, Burkhart was sullen and downcast, and he said, I'm through lying, judge. And the next day in court, Burkhart advised the judge that he no longer would be siding with defense, but would be represented by a new lawyer and recant his plea of not guilty to a plea of guilty. And he said, quote, I'm sick and tired of all this. I want to admit exactly what I did. And Ernest continued to read a statement in which he acknowledged that he carried a message from Bill Hale to John Ramsey, which said to let Asa Kirby know it was time to blow up the Smith House. He knew that admitting his part in the conspiracy was the honorable and just thing to do, and he wanted to make the truth known. Ernest was sentenced to life in prison in hard labor on June 21, 1926. And Molly's expression had grown cold towards her husband. She was finally starting to accept that he was guilty. And after Ernest's confession, support for William Hale tanked, but there is still more work to be done. Bill Hale and his henchmen still needed to be tried and convicted. Oh gosh, I still feel bad for Anna. It's one thing to deny it when your husband's fighting for his innocence, but when he says, yeah, I did it, where do you go with that? Exactly. The betrayal... And then you feel like an ass because you've been supporting this man. Mm -hmm. I said the people who had been calling you stupid were right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to believe even when we talk about serial killers who are caught after like these decades long spans. And people are like, well, how didn't you know? Well, it's something that you don't want to believe. Yeah. Talked about Liz Kendall. You know, she picked up on things. She called the police several times. You know, she knew something wasn't right. But even then, you're you're waffling because, really? Is this really what I'm involved in? Mm -hmm. So I I totally get the the vacillation on believing it. But when it just hits you in the face like that, that poor woman, what she went through is horrible. I know. Now, who I don't feel bad for is William Hale. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Hale felt this uh, figurative noose tightening around his neck, and not to mention killing off witnesses. He's also trying to break others out of jail and help them escape so they couldn't be called to testify against him. Now, one such accomplice is Blackie Thompson. Remember him? So he admitted to White and the authorities that Hale had promised to get him out, but he had to do a favor in return. And that favor is to kidnap Ernest Burkhart, And make him disappear. No, no, not kill him. Just spirit him off to Mexico. Because, yeah, yeah, he has some standards and Ernest is his family, you see. And, you know, who knew that even family meant anything to Hale? As the trial was getting closer and more attention was being paid to the jury pool, were they being bribed? Were they secret Hale affiliates? So another problem that the prosecution has to consider is even a harder one. Would a jury of white men be able to convict another white man of murder against 
an indigenous person. Now put yourself in 1926. Considering the climate of the times, it was really hard to tell if a white all-male jury could be counted on to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So on July 29th, the first day of the Hale-Ramsey trial, it is sweltering inside of the courtroom. As John Leahy outlined in the pertinent points of the insurance murder plot, William Hale and John Ramsey seemed as cool as cucumbers. And the next day, July 30th, Ernest Burkhart took the stand. Burkhart recalled a conversation in which Bill Hale and Henry Grammer discussed killing Henry Rowan with some poisoned moonshine. The Osage had known for a long time that privileged white men were utilizing tainted alcohol to kill off members of the Osage. Now it was publicized. It wasn't just a rumor anymore. It's out in the open now. It is On August 7th, a week after the trial started, the prosecution rested. Ernest Burkhardt's testimony was especially damaging as it related to the death of Henry Rowan with many incriminating statements from William Hale. The prosecution closed with this. The richest tribe of Indians on the globe has become the illegitimate prey of white men. The Indian is going. A great principle is involved in this case. The people of the United States are following us in the press. The time has come now for you gentlemen to do your part. And on August 20th, the jury began deliberations. And after five days, it appeared the jury was split and they were deadlocked. There was no way to come to an agreement on a verdict of guilty or not guilty. One member of the prosecution team advised the judge a significant chance that some members of the jury had been bribed. And with that knowledge, the judge dismissed the jurors and held the defendants over pending another trial. Hale and Ramsey weren't going to get off so easily, thankfully. Mm. A hung jury was also the outcome of the trial for Brian Burkhart. And as you can imagine, the Osage were angry. Mm. There was even talk of vigilantism. And if they couldn't find 12 white men to give a verdict of guilty, then who would they find to render the justice that they so very much deserved? And as a result of all this, Tom White was asked to investigate jury tampering and corruption in the first trial of William Hale. He quickly uncovered a tremendous amount of damning evidence against the defense team. Bribes, perjury, threats, death, figure. Mm-hmm. The retrial began in October and lasted only eight days and the same case more or less being presented by both sides. This time, a verdict of guilty was rendered to both John Ramsey and William Hale. However, the men at the jury couldn't find it within themselves to put them under death. Only life in prison with hard labor. At least it's something. Life in prison. I'm getting used to that life in prison thing, since, you know, we trade the death penalty for life in prison. Yeah, I know. For a guilty plea, I'm getting used to it. Yeah. A year later, the trial to convict the men responsible for the murder of Anna Brown took place. And silent and stoic as always, Molly Burkhardt attended. She looked on, and just the weight and the comprehension of what Ernest and Brian did to her family, and even to her, must have been a supremely horrible feeling. Brian had stood by as Kelsey Morrison shot her sister. And he knew that when they went to go see this dead body that they couldn't recognize as Anna Brown, 
due to the decomposition, he knew it had been her the whole entire time. And as for Ernest, he knew it was Anna too, and he stood by comforting his wife, even fully knowing what had happened to her. She couldn't look at Ernest anymore. He was dead to her. She ended up divorcing his ex. Yeah, poor Molly. I know. Now, as for Hoover and his fledgling FBI, the Osage murder case was a kickstarter for what the modern Bureau was to become. Grant wrote that this case provided the need for a national, more professional, scientifically skilled force. Hoover added his own personal touches to the Big Bang of the FBI and how it all started. He was the one who pulled them from the outer frontier of lawlessness to create the streamlined operation that it now became. Hoover wanted all the glory. White and his men were silently thanked for their efforts and given a small pay raise. Gratitude. What a guy. Yeah. I mean, a pay raise is a pay raise, but, you know, he never even mentioned them by name when it came to discussing the case. Because, you know, they didn't fit the image that he wanted for the Bureau. You know, the young white men, college-educated business professionals. Yeah, they were still cowboys. Hey, he's a cowboy. Yeah. And it was actually the Osage Tribal Council that publicly called out White and his team for the work that they did. So they get recognition really from the people that they helped directly. And now that it was over, Tom White had a decision to make. The U.S. Assistant Attorney General asked Tom if he would take over as warden of Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. As the oldest prison in the United States, it was also one of the last places an inmate would want to be incarcerated. Uh, maybe Tom could change that. Now, Hoover didn't want Tom to leave, but Tom did make the decision to go. He could finally settle with his wife and two boys in one place. It was Leavenworth that White found himself on November 17, uh, 1926, just settling in as a new warden when two new inmates arrived. White walked out to meet them. It was Bill Hale and John Ramsey. Thank you. Karma. I love karma when it works. I love to see it in action. Good. They ended up there. Yep, they sure did. So, Graham takes some time in the last bits of part two in his book to let us know the fate of some of our main characters, and mostly our heroes of the story. So, Tom is, is the leader of all of our agents, so Graham dedicates the most time to him. So Tom was warden at Leavenworth and had moved his family onto the grounds, so literally following in his father's footsteps. His wife initially had her doubts about her family sharing the same land as prison inmates. You think? I would too. I'd have to say, wait a minute, we're going to do what? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) However, there's other problems that Tom needs to worry about first, like the fact that Leavenworth was designed to hold 1,200 inmates. And it held three times that number. And the fact that the prison got to be at least 115 degrees during the dog days of summer. You know, like, talk about a hellhole. Like, this is it. For our international community, we're talking probably about 50 degrees Celsius. Thank you for the conversion. Yeah, it's hot. And, you know, White did his best to improve the conditions there. And just like his father... He was a fair and just man to the inmates, 
and he more or less cared about how they were treated than they were entrusted to him. However, there was one inmate who joined the ranks, and it was the first time that Tom had ever had a hand in the death of someone. Remember, he's one who is arresting people without using a weapon. He never got involved in any shootouts. He literally is the evidence man. He uses evidence to pull people away. But this man who he had put to death was Carl Pansram. And murder bookies, you should know him as one of the most violent serial killers and rapists the early 20th century had ever seen. We have to do a book on him. I know. He was... What a guy. Yeah. What a story. What a and in 1931, White's actually taken hostage in an attempted prison escape that included some members of the Al Spencer gang that he had helped put away. And they ended up getting off the property with White and a few other hostages. And White was actually shot in the arm with some shrapnel moving into his chest. It was a shotgun blast. And he was actually left to die in a ditch. Luckily, he was found and brought to a hospital, and they were able to save his life. And, you know, none of the inmates properly escaped. They were all caught and brought back to Leavenworth to face punishment. But White never retaliated with the men who shot him. He said, no one touches these guys. You know, like, talk about character. He not only talked the talk, the man walked the walk. Mm -hmm. He saw prison as something to rehabilitate. You had to do your time. Some people there were not lifers, so he was there to rehabilitate, and he was a role model, and that's why he is my hero. Now, J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau were riding high on the tide of the Osage murder case, and Congress is going to pass some New Deal reforms that grant the country a criminal code in addition to allowing agents to now carry firearms and make arrests. So, yeah, so we're starting to see the Bureau become the Federal Bureau of Investigation that we would recognize. Like I said, Tom White's son would eventually join the Bureau, and that would make three generations of lawmen, as we talked about that, you know, law enforcement family tree. Hoover made the Bureau's identity indistinguishable from his own. He wanted all the power, and he more or less had it, and... Although the level of corruption that Hoover was involved in would not be revealed until much, much later after his death in 1972, Grant wrote that despite wise perceptiveness, he was blind to the boss man's megalomania, his politicalization of the Bureau, and his paranoid plots against an ever-growing list of perceived enemies, among them American Indian activists. It seemed Hoover really only cared about his name and the reputation of the Bureau, not the agents who made it. Now remember, none of them got any recognition whatsoever. I'll pay pay increase. Right. Just as Hoover had to be reminded of the agents who played a part in his success, the Osage murder case was dropped off the radar of the public eye. And by the 1950s, most Americans had forgotten about the reign of terror altogether. Tom contemplated writing a story about his time down in Osage County so that there would be a written record of the work that he and his agents did, so that it would not be lost to time. Most of the agents that worked the case had died relatively unknown and without appreciation or even in poverty. Right? Yeah, that's just, that. that's not right. When 
quite realized that he wasn't that good at writing. He enlisted the help of author Frank Grove to help. Grove was an author of a few Western novels and had actually been a boy in Fairfax at the time of the bombing that had killed Bill and Rita Smith. Unfortunately, though, publishers didn't find the story compelling enough and the book was not published. That must have been a super dry book if no one is going to publish this. Come on. I'm amazed because the story is so compelling. But Grove does later release a fictionalized version of the tale called The Years of Fear. And that was picked up because then they could offer it as fiction and not truth. Right. Huh. Yeah. So, in October 1971, his body having failed him, Tom White died. And a friend stated that he, quote, died as he had lived, quietly and with a calm dignity, end quote. It's unfortunate that the public never got to read the original manuscript from Frank Grove and Tom White. However, David Grand does a wonderful job immortalizing Tom White and the agents who had helped solve this case, although some of that information has indeed been lost to history over time. However, this isn't quite the end. We still have more to go, as during Grand's research, he uncovered a conspiracy that was much greater than Tom White and the Bureau could ever know. Something that was much darker and more sinister, and something that was never fully exposed until the publishing of this book. So now we enter part three of Grant's story, where he discusses the time he spent down in Osage County to research his book. He found much more than he had bargained for. Now, in today's world, Pasca is essentially a ghost town. Not much is left there. And one of Grant's first stops was at the Osage Nation Museum where he met Catherine Redcorn. She showed him a large mural that graces part of the wall at the museum where a part of the piece is missing. Granted, it looked like it had been cut with scissors, and that's basically what happened. Redcorn stated, The devil was standing right there. The devil that was excised from their history was William Hill. Now, Grant happened to be visiting in the month of June, where the Osage held large gatherings in their ceremonial dance called the Inland Shika. Osage historians wrote, To believe that the Osage survived intact from their ordeal is a delusion of the mind. What has been possible to salvage has been saved and is dearer to our hearts because it survived. What is gone is treasured because it is what we once were. We gather our past and our present into the depths of our being and face tomorrow. We are still Osage. We live and we reach old age for our forefathers. All right, it was at these tribal dances that Grand met Margie Burkhart, the granddaughter of Molly Burkhart. Her father was James Cowboy Burkhart, the son of Molly and Ernest. And Margie described to Grand how Cowboy had a rough time dealing with what his father did to his mother, Molly, who he absolutely adored. Now, Margie continued to describe the latter years of Molly and Ernest. Molly having gone on and married John Cobb, who was both white and part Creek Indian. They were married in 1928. I'm so glad that she moved on and the betrayal did not sour her to love and happiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1931, it was declared that Molly was no longer a ward of the state. Huge. She was finally an American citizen 
and she could spend her money as she pleased. This was a period of great happiness for her, and she died on June 16, 1937, at 50 years of age. Towards the end of the same year, Ernest Burkhart was paroled. He had served roughly 10 years of the life sentence he received. However, he was barely out before he robbed an Osage home and ended up right back where he started. Ten years later, in 1947, while Ernest was still in jail, William Hale was released. Yes, William Hale was released. What happened to life in prison? Twenty years for the terror he brought to the whole tribe of people. Alright, so he was at Leavenworth, right? And while there, he was given a psychological evaluation. While no evidence of psychopathy was found, they all agreed that he had a vicious component to his makeup. While Hale would never admit to any of the crimes he was accused and convicted of, but he would continue to plot ways to make his escape. Always scheming. Always scheming. You know, a stipulation of his release, which was surely of little comfort to anybody, was that he stay out of Oklahoma. However, he was known to have said, if that damn Ernest had kept his mouth shut, we'd be rich today. No remorse. Nothing. Obviously. Holy crap. Murphy never met him. But he died in an Arizona nursing home in 1962. Good riddance, even though justice, I don't think, fully prevailed in the case. You know, Just rot. Mm-hmm. And Ernest did apply for a pardon to return to Oklahoma after he was released from prison. And due to his good standing with the Bureau and helping them to solve the case, his pardon was granted. Mm-hmm. However, okay. There was something that wasn't in the FBI records that Margie told Grant, and that was that the night Bill and Rita Smith were murdered, Molly, Cowboy, and Elizabeth were all supposed to have been staying at the house with them. Cowboy had an earache, so Molly kept them all home, and that was the reason that they had to that. Let that sink in. I'm sorry, that is a family annihilator. That he was going to yep. wipe them all out. Yep, that would have taken everyone out. God awful. Do you think that Ernest wasn't prepared to let that happen? It's not like he stopped them and said, "Hey, Cowboy's feeling sick. Let's let's keep him home." Nope. I'm sure he was prepared to have them be blown up too. Yep, absolutely. He was going along with it. That's what he did. He went along. Yeah, absolutely. That's what he always did. He was brother Brian. And, you know, they ended up living together in O.C.A. County, where he lived a long life, unlike the ones he helped to take, until his passing in 1986. Continuing with her story, Marty tells Graham that she remembers hearing the oil wells when she was a little girl, and then one day they just stopped. The oil had dried up, and revenues were gone. But yet, just as they have continued to survive throughout all of the hardship committed against their tribe ever since white men came to America. The Osage found new revenue in opening seven casinos, in which money went right back into the tribe to help fund education, their government, and health care. And also, after an 11-year battle with the U.S. government, the Osage settled a lawsuit to the tune of $380 million. However, none of this is going to buy back the debt. No, it's not. Now, records show us 
that as soon as William Hale and his co-conspirators had been arrested, tried, and convicted, that that was the end of the conspiracy and the end of the Reign of Terror. Well, that's what history would have you believe. But Hale had not been linked to all of the 24 murders that occurred during this time period. Gran ends up meeting with W.W. Vaughn's granddaughter, Martha. You remember him? He was the man who was beaten to death and thrown naked from the train after speaking with Chief Bigheart upon his deathbed? Mm-hmm. Martha and her cousin, Melville, were convinced that their grandfather had some damning evidence that would have pushed William Hale right into the electric chair. And the running story was that Hale had paid someone to get rid of Vaughn. However, after the trial, when family members were still looking for answers, anonymous threats were made to Vaughn's surviving family. There were conspirators still out there, and they did not want to be taken down with William Hale. A name that Gran wrote down from his discussion with Martha and Melville was H.G. Burt, president of the Paul Huska Bank. As Gran began to dig, he uncovered a few things. Vaughn's widow filed a lawsuit against this H.G. Burt for the sum of $10,000, which he apparently owed her husband. Graham followed the breadcrumbs, and this particular sum of money was also connected to another victim, George Bigheart. Vaughn was helping Bigheart obtain a certificate of competency where he would no longer be considered a ward of the state. So the sum of the fees was $10,000. Bird had somehow gotten Bigheart money, while both Bigheart and Vaughn ended up dead. Bert was also one of the numerous characters profiting off of Indian business, the swindling of the Osage out of money, territory, and even their head rights. And it gets worse. <laughs> Is it worse? It does, but I can't even believe it's worse. It's going to get worse. Grant found records from the Bureau indicating that they knew about Bert and that he was associated with Hale. An informant had told them that the two men had split the money they had gotten off the Big Heart scam. However, there was no indication of motive or who would have benefited from the murder of Big Heart. That was until our author, David Grant, continued to dig even more deeper. Big Heart's daughter had a guardian, and that was H.G. Friggin' Burt. Grant found another file buried deep in one of the National Archives. One where an informant indicated that Burt had killed Vaughn. Other law enforcement officials were on to Burt, who ended up fleeing to Kansas in 1925. And while it proved that there was another layer of sinister conspiracy, William Hale was still the big bad, it at least solidified with near accuracy that Burt had been responsible for W.W. Vaughn's death, and that was enough for Martha. Well, at least they knew what happened, even if they didn't get justice. Yeah. Now, remember his red corn from the museum? She had a story for Gran. Her grandfather had divorced her grandmother and ended up marrying a white woman. And he quickly became convinced that he was being poisoned by his new wife. And when anyone came to the house, he advised his relatives not to eat or drink anything. Why would you even go over? Seriously. He dropped dead at the age of 46, and Red Corn's words were ominous. Quote, Back then, everyone covered things up. 
the undertakers, the doctors, the police. There were a lot more murders during the Reign of Terror than people know about. A lot more. End quote. Scary. Terrifying. Oh my god. Now this conversation struck a chord. One of the things that didn't make sense to Graham was the murder of Charles Whitehorn, the Osage man that was found the same day as Anna Brown. Hale had never been implicated in the murder. Records from private investigators indicate that Whitehorn's widow, so Hattie married a white man named Leroy Smitherman shortly after her husband's death. The marriage had actually been orchestrated by Minnie Savage, a woman who owned a boarding house in Pahuska. Besides Hattie, these names were never brought up. So, never heard of them. No. Where did they come from, right? So it was believed that the three were involved in a conspiracy to kill Whitehorn to obtain his head right. Now, this was also the primary conclusion of the FBI when they came to investigate in 1923, a few years after the fact. Now, by the time Tom White shows up in 1925, the FBI dropped the case. So more than one mastermind didn't fit into the pretty little box that J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau concocted. Therefore, the murder of Charles Whitehorn was a one-off unconnected to the other Osage murders. Wait, what? <laughs> Sorry, just too many balls in the air. We're focusing on the Hale one. That's it. They really just wanted one guy to be responsible. That's it. And you know, according to many historical accounts... The reign of terror began in the spring of 1921 with the murder of Anna Brown and continued until January 1926 when Hale was brought to justice. However, Graham found multiple records that indicated that the murder of the Osage for their head rights went on much longer, with one account having it begin as early as 1918 to when Redcorn's grandfather was murdered in 1931, years after Hale's arrest. Hale may be documented as having killed the most Osage, however, he was not the singular killer. Logs were kept of Osage guardians and their ward, and Grant discovered that the number of deaths were much higher than would seem natural. And unfortunately, as the conspiracy in Britain was made up of the privileged white men of the county, many of the murders went unsolved, or even worse, uninvestigated. And for a more detailed description of all of these little facts and dates and people who were murdered, you definitely need to read this book. You just couldn't cover it all. And, you know, this story has been absolutely crazy. It's, it's literally true crime galore. It's exciting, it's devious, and the good guys do win. Yeah. Today. You know, at the end of this book, we sit here and we think that well, Grant has given life to a story that could have definitely been lost to history. I know I never learned about this in history class. Nope. Have to remember that this is just what it is. It's history. It's real life. Grant's journey into understanding the full story is one that reminds us all just of the terrible nature that men of privilege are capable of when their empathy is supplanted by greed. I'm just so thankful there was a Tom White. Yeah. At least some of it got taken care of, but the rest got swept under the rug. Yep. And that concludes part two of our series on Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. So tune in next time as we take a very different turn for second cast. 
We've been spending a lot of time investigating the 2018 disappearance of Kristen Sue Richardson, also known as Crash, an indigenous woman from Muskegee, Oklahoma. Interspersed with interview clips, it's our hope to shed some light on this case and to get to those who know what happened to come forth and do the right thing. We want to give crowdsourcing a chance to work and make Billy Jensen, Paul Hose, and Sheila Wysocki very proud. We want to make a real difference here, Murder Bookies. Do not miss this very special episode. Jill has been doing the work and digging super deep when I've been laid out. So we appreciate her research, and I will help do the best I can to make sure that this episode is as perfect as it can be, because we need to make it happen. We need to find out what happened to her. She is presumed murdered, and I want to know who did this. Exactly. Yeah. So tune in next time for our next episode, but also get started on our next book, Gone by Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb by Jake Anderson. And this is the story of Elisa Lamb, a 21-year-old student from Vancouver who was last seen on January 31st, 2013 in L.A.'s own Cecil Hotel. And I'm sure you've all seen the YouTube video where she is in and out of an elevator, pushing a lot of buttons. She looks scared, but we don't see anybody else. And that's the last footage of anybody that's ever seen her alive. And so Jake Anderson writes in detail regarding discoveries of Eliza Lamb that he's found, who she was, and what she was running from. So join us in a couple more episodes as we discuss this book which presents new evidence that just may reopen the case. Thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We really do love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us that coveted five-star review. We'd really do love your feedback. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading.